Local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. We've got a jam-packed show for you. Uh, we're going to touch base with the school district on last week's announcement that uh, feminine hygiene products be made available in the school system. What does that mean locally? We'll find out. We're going to touch base on the E-Drive, big game changer in the LNG industry in a little while. And we'll also read the tea leaves on the coming wildfire season with Kevin Skrebnik. But first, I had a chance to touch base with the Premier of this province, John Horgan, on Friday as he launched a forestry renewal. What is it mean for the interior and some other topics. Let's listen in that conversation now. Premier, you announced at the uh, the conference today that uh, you're going to try and revitalize the interior forestry sector. Uh, this is an issue that's percolated for a long time. Uh, obviously, a lot easier said than done. Um, I'm looking at the release, and, and it all sounds nice, but it's really short on detail. So why don't we start off in a couple of things. Uh, well, the release says, um, so I'll quote it here, specifically on ways to increase value-added production from reduced wood fiber supply. Uh, what does that mean in actual well, everyone who works in the forest industry or depends on the forest industry knows that with the end of the beetle kill, we're running out of access to quality fiber. And uh, the challenge in communities right across the interior is how do we make up for that fall down? We had a lot of intense energy going into getting beetle wood out of the forest while it was still merchantable. And now, after two of the worst fire seasons in known uh, recorded history, we have a further problem. Couple that with low prices uh, and the challenges of softwood lumber. Everywhere I go, when I talk to industry, when I talk to workers, when I talk to community leaders, they say, you know, we've got some problems here, but they're not insurmountable problems. And I had an opportunity to speak to the Council of Forest Industries uh, Convention today, some 700 people from around the province, uh, CEOs, workers, community leaders, uh, investors, um, markets, uh, uh, market operators, that sort of thing. And, and I put the challenge to them that uh, rather than have government lay down on top of them a prescriptive solution to these uh, significant challenges, uh, let's find the opportunities for investment. Let's find the opportunities for communities by having everybody at the table. And by and large, I've had a fairly positive response. I wrote to all of the CEOs of forest companies in the interior earlier in the week to let them know uh, where we were going. It wasn't going to be prescriptive. It was going to be up to industry leaders, indigenous leaders, mayors, regional directors, and so on, labor leaders, to put the tables together on a timber supply area basis. So that means the Kamloops timber supply, for example, which would take in Merritt, would take in uh, areas north of Kamloops. Let's sit down and talk about how we manage timber supply in this area. Not uh, in increasing or decreasing, but how do we add more value to the work that we do. So a high value approach rather than a high volume approach. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty much where the, the industry knows we have to get to. Let's make sure we're doing that with communities and Indigenous leaders as well. I know you've mandated the use of wood, uh, engineered wood, in, in some major building projects. But what other ways do you go from high volume to high value? Well, that's just how you do it, is you create a market or find a market. When I talked to leaders before the last election about value added, they said, look, we're quite happy to change our profile in our operations, our manufacturing operations, but we need to make sure we've got a market to go to. And you go back a decade or two decades, the challenges of the softwood lumber disputes that happen every decade, every 10 years or so uh, with the United States, 
the industry and governments in the past have responded by creating new markets. So we have enormous uh, trade with China, with Japan, with Korea. But it's dimensional lumber largely, and in some cases raw logs, which is a challenge on the coast. And we've taken steps to try and reduce the number of logs leaving BC, create more jobs here. But in the interior, the challenges are different. And if we're going to find new markets, how can the province help create those markets? The success of Structure Lamb in Okanagan Falls, a small company that's creating um, uh, engineered wood products, mass timber for construction, not just here in BC, but in fact, when I was there a couple of weeks ago, they were putting together the components for the next head office for uh, Microsoft in San Jose, California. So we're sending value-added wood products to the United States, no tariff in place, no duties in place, creating more jobs here, getting more value out of our fiber. And so if we can take our capital budget, some $20 billion here in BC, and I highlighted just two examples, the redevelopment of the BC Museum in Victoria, if we're using engineered wood products there, not only are we putting a new face on our collection, our historical artifacts and the valuable things that make British Columbia so special, that are contained at the museum, but if we're building that with new generation wood products, it also sends a signal not just to tourists who come to Victoria, but to industry that, hey, we can build with wood. Similarly, the St. Paul's replacement of some uh, $1.9 billion capital hospital project in the Lower Mainland, if we can use as much mass timber as possible there, meeting requirements in the city of Vancouver and so on, that creates an instant market for companies to shift away from dimensional lumber to mass timber. This is good news for the faculties of forestry and various institutions around BC. It's good news for architects and engineers as they develop new tools and new ways to build the buildings of the future, carbon-friendly, uh, cost-effective, creating jobs here in BC. So I'm excited about it, and, and many, of the, many of the CEOs that were there are too. Uh, Ken Kalashnikov from Kalashnikov Lumber in the Kootenays, the day after we announced that we were moving to the National Building Code a year ahead of other provinces, Kalashnikov made an investment in CLT, cross-laminated timber in the Kootenays right away, as they see an opportunity. And if we add these new capital projects as they come on stream, that creates other opportunities. And then we can export that technology, export that mass timber to our existing markets in Asia and to other markets around the world. A locally led process uh, on, the, on the timeline, John, you're going to get these groups together, they're going to put everything on the table, they got to hammer something out. What do you see as far as a timeline on the other end to actually have something to turn around and say to British Columbians, okay, we, we've done the hard work, now this is what we're doing? Firstly, we're avoiding deliberately the one-size-fits-all model. So solutions in Kamloops are going to be different uh, to solutions in the Mackenzie District or Fort St. John or, or Prince George. Doing it timber supply area by timber supply area means that we're taking digestible bits and involving people directly, mayors, regional directors, indigenous leaders, labor leaders, and CEOs. I mean, this is not going to be a junior level operation. We want people, leaders in communities, leader in in, leaders in industry to be at a table saying, these are the challenges, these are the opportunities, and not in a transactional way. I made it clear in, the, in talking to indi Indigenous leaders that this does not replace existing discussions between Canada and Indigenous communities or BC and Indigenous communities, doesn't replace talks of, around reconciliation or any other agreements that Indigenous communities can negotiate with forest companies. This is about taking all of the interested parties, putting them down in a room and saying, What's the best way forward for us in this area? And I, I believe we're going to get some positive results. 
the terms of reference are going to be starting to, to filter out next week, and we're going to be developing them together. It's useless for me to prescribe a solution that won't work in Golden. It might work in Vanderhoof, but it won't work in Golden. So we need the people in Golden that are, that are focused on these issues, and their livelihood depends on it, and the future of their communities in some instances depend on it. They're the people best suited to put the terms in place, put the solutions on the table, and, and grapple with uh, the various stakeholders at the same time. On the timeline again, though, John, do you see that taking like a year, two years? I mean, as oh, far no. as getting to the end? We're hopeful that where people can come together quickly, address the, the problems, get them on the table, and then start sharing the solutions, uh, we're hoping that we can be uh, getting into uh, implementation sometime this fall. Uh, we've got the summer. It's always, always a difficult time to get people together. But this is a pressing matter. People have known about the fall down in the annual allowable cut for some time. We know that beetlewood is now gone, and now it's about how do we manage the existing fiber supply, keeping in mind all of the other values that are important in our forests as well, wildlife, medicinal plants, and other values that are in our forests. Uh, and that, again, is part and parcel of where we go from here. doesn't replace existing land use planning, doesn't preclude other people from participating but we wanted a leader to leader discussion so that we can open this up to the public by saying this is how your council your mayor this is how your uh, labor organization this is how your indigenous community want to proceed and, and i i do believe that we're going to get some positive results it's not going to be easy no one's suggesting that but i believe that it's the best way to get people to talk about their needs in a way that that recognizes the needs of other people as well uh, well, I got you. The land title record story is a big one locally. Uh, we've learned in the last couple of days that Doug Donaldson was informed in October. Uh, nobody was consulted here, uh, not town council, not the regional districts, certainly not area First Nations, all of whom are opposed. Uh, the regional district, the council passing motions this week saying we want to pause on this thing. We want face-to-face -face meetings. We want to know what's going on. Uh, and yet I am told that the process is now being expedited and could begin as early as next week. In your opinion, how important is is it for this uh, for consultations to take place before land title records are removed? Well, firstly, I, I think it's important for your listeners to know that land title uh, records are not being disposed of. They're being uh, copied. They're being digitized. They're being uh, stored in appropriate uh, climatic conditions. Uh, the archivists in Victoria uh, have expertise that have technologies that may not necessarily exist in other parts of the province. I know that Minister Donaldson seized of uh, community interest in this, and I have every expectation that he's going to be working with mayor, council, and indigenous groups uh, to find a way forward. But this isn't about uh, taking uh, records away for all time. This is about preserving and protecting them for all time and ensuring that uh, that's done in an appropriate manner. Yeah, but it doesn't appear to be done in an appropriate manner, Premier. I mean, nobody knew about it. It all leaked out second and third hand, and, and suddenly now it's in the news six months after the fact, and First Nations here are really, really upset, uh, and they want to they wanna talk to the office. They want to hear face-to-face, -face, and it seems like it's a decision made, and they're going to try and be uh, placated after the fact, which isn't going over very well here. Well, I'm meeting with the Leadership Council, uh, the Indigenous Leadership Council, on Monday in one of our quarterly meetings. Uh, if it comes up there, I'll certainly address it. Uh, I, I, do, I will commit to you to take this back and, and talk to Minister Donaldson uh, one more time uh, to see uh, uh, just where we are in terms of consultation and ensuring that people are not uh, being deprived of these records. So the objective here was to protect them and preserve them, uh, not to uh, squirrel them away so that there was no access to them, quite the contrary. So if, if those objectives are not 
being fully uh, communicated, then we're going to have to do a better job of it. And if there are other solutions that are going to come from community, uh, then we'll certainly look at those as well. But uh, Doug's responsible. Doug Donaldson's responsible for the file. And uh, I have every confidence that he's going to do what he can to make sure that the public is satisfied that these records are going to be safe, uh, they're going to be accessible, uh, not just in the short term, but for the long term as well. Premier, as always, you've been generous with your time. Thank you so much. Okay, Shane, take care. And that was Premier John Horgan talking forestry as well as wading into the land titles office controversy here in Kamloops. Quick break on the Woodford Show on the other side. We'll hear from the Kamloops School District's Trish Smiley. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, as of last week, this province's education minister mandating that school districts will have to provide free menstrual products for students in school bathrooms uh, by the end of this year. What does this mean locally? A pleasure to welcome to the program uh, Kamloops Thompson School District's Director of Instruction and Learning Services, Trish Smiley. Uh, good morning, Trish. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Very well. How are you? I am good. Okay, so as I understand it, uh, the school district uh, is is not new to this issue. This is something we've been ahead of the curve on, but uh, what, if anything, does last week's announcement mean for us? Well, we're very pleased to learn of the government's announcement of support for free access to menstrual products for, stu- for students in our school washrooms. Uh, this is definitely going to create a bit more equity for our students, particularly around those that uh, have trouble affording those products. Have we been doing this already or no? We have. Our schools currently provide access to menstrual products on request. Uh, we receive these products from several companies for free. Uh, with the new ministerial order, though, this will create uh, more consistently available products uh, in the washrooms in our schools. So we're very much looking forward to that. So the the announcement came with $300,000, as I understand it, in startup funding. I think that uh, is probably per district. I'm not entirely positive on that. But uh, as you see this sort of rolling out or enhancing what you already have to offer, what is what kind of work on the ground does the school district need to do uh, to meet the mandate? Definitely. Once we hear about our funding requirements, uh, I, I'm anticipating they'll send us some direction on the logistics of how to have these things installed and uh, how to create uh, further equity around um, the types of products that we'll be providing. Uh, We don't know at this point what type of a a grant we'll be receiving from the government, just we'll receive part of that $300,000, so we're looking forward to that. Does this provide any sort of cost relief for you guys? As you mentioned, you've been doing it already. I assume that that hasn't been free for you to do. Does this mean that that, whatever that cost is, uh, is now sort of off your shoulders and can be redirected elsewhere, or what does that sort of look like? Uh, We're very fortunate to receive a number of free products from a number of companies, and uh, so this should be more of an enhancement to what we're providing right now. And how do you guys uh, sort of see the supply? I mean, you're going to have to make sure that, uh, I'm assuming it's some kind of a a machine or something in in the women's washroom uh, that dispenses this stuff. Uh, You're going to have to make sure those are fully stocked. Is that going to mean any sort of supply issues or or trying to figure out, okay, we need a steady stream. Uh, How do we figure that out? Definitely. So we'll have to take a, we'll be looking at it over the next year. So as we start regularly stocking these products, we'll be determining what kind of inventory we need to make sure we have on hand and uh, making sure that they're stocked appropriately. What does this mean for for young women out there? I, I, I mean, it's just crazy to me. It's 2019 and we're, we're just doing this now, uh, which is a little madness uh, of all of its own. But hey, we, we've done it great. That's awesome. But what does it mean for, for young women in the district? 
I think it's wonderful. So it will create a more equitable, a better learning environment for students. It really is time to start to remove the stigma, inconvenience, and cost around having having your period. Uh, for our students, our female and uh, students who are transgender, it's an important movement forward to to reduce some of the the stigma around having your period. What is the what is the stigma around that? What do what do young women face out there? I think often students who can't afford menstrual products or suddenly need access to these products are inconvenienced. Uh, the Minister of Education did say that one in seven students uh, were missing school due to their periods because they can't afford the products. So I think this definitely is common sense that we should be ensuring that our students have access to this uh, and removing some barriers to an equitable education for our students. Okay, so essentially you guys are waiting for a little bit of direction. You don't really understand yet uh, what this is going to look like as far as actual implementation and cost. Is that correct? Exactly. Um, we will have some direction quite quickly, I believe, and uh, we'll be making a plan following that. Right now, conceptually, though, we're really excited about it and look forward to getting started on the work. Do you anticipate it will be like on a workload basis? Is it something fairly easy to, to implement because you already are sort of doing it now and you've got something to build off of? Or is it the, the sheer mechanics of getting the whatever installed? Is, is that going to be a problem on the, on the basis of, okay, we got X amount of schools and this is the timeline? Will that be an issue or no? That shouldn't be an issue. We have lots of time. So this is implemented by the end of 2019. Uh, in our school district, we're always ahead of the curve for timeline. So we begin with doing a bit of an inventory of our facilities to make sure we have all the equipment needed to dispense these materials. Uh, our inventory, uh, we'll have to make sure that our inventory is able to be kind of accessed uh, readily. Right now our access is through the schools so we'll do that on a district level to make sure that we can stock these products and following that uh, we'll make sure that we have our uh, installations all uh, in place to be ready to go for the time uh, uh, we're able to we're able to with, with uh, everything we need to do. So obviously a major step forward. I guess my final question to you is, uh, is this, uh, is there more we need to do to either end this stigma around, around menstruation or uh, are there other issues now that we need to focus on that are facing young women in the school district that, that need the attention of the ministry? We have a very robust education programming for students around inclusive sexual health. So I, I believe we're accomplishing sort of the reduction of stigma that way. I think this is uh, largely a step forward in equity, reducing the period poverty that exists in our province. So I look forward to that being the, the result of, of this really forward-thinking uh, ministerial order. Excellent. Tricia, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your morning to talk to us about this uh, really important topic, and uh, I think it's a great step forward. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shane. Yeah, appreciate it. That's Trish Smiley. She's the Director of Instruction and Learning Services with the Camelot Thompson School Board. Uh, as I mentioned off the top, the province now mandating that uh, menstrual products for young women be uh, made available in all bathrooms uh, for women in school districts ac across the province. Camelot Thompson, a uh, little ahead of the curve on that, something they've sort of been doing already, but now they have something to build off of. We'll take a quick break. And on the other side of uh, the show, we'll talk uh, LNG and an e-drive and what it means for the industry. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Focusing on LNG on this segment. Uh, big news out of Kitimat last week when the Chevron Woodside Kitimat LNG project announced it would be adopting an electric drive, something being called the Tesla of LNG facilities and a bit of a game changer. Real pleasure to welcome to the program the president and CEO of the BC LNG Alliance, Brian Cox. Good morning, Brian. How are you? I'm doing great, Shane. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So uh, it's been, as I mentioned, it's been called the Tesla of LNG projects and a, a real game changer, but uh, you would know far more than I would being inside the industry. Uh, how big a deal is this e-drive? Well, I think this is a very exciting uh, moment in, in LNG in British Columbia. You know, we've been talking about LNG for many years, and I know you've been hearing about it as being close to it for the past few years, but, you know, we're in a new place now with a final investment decision from LNG Canada. Uh, we have an industry in this province, and uh, we have proponents that are looking to invest, and it's a very exciting news for this province to show what we're able to do with our strong regulatory system, with strong innovation from our proponents, and the fact that British Columbia, as always, is taking that leadership role. So, so what we have is a very exciting opportunity for multiple proponents now. And uh, you know what we need to do is work collectively to ensure that these projects get built responsibly and in partnership. And really, quite frankly, this is the first time that that our generation has had an opportunity to build a brand new industry, and it's it's really exciting and provides a real opportunity for for British Columbia and Canada, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, but as far as the Chevron Woodside Kitimat LNG project goes in this e-drive, I mean, uh, as again, you would know far better than I, but what, is this, what does this really mean? I mean, it's being called a game changer. Uh, is it earth-shattering stuff within the industry, or give me a sense of what, what this means? Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely big news because it's a large-scale project and they're looking at electrification. It's, it's, uh, it's really big news. I mean, you look at the context of BC right now, we do have, um, you know, one operating uh, uh, LNG facility in the Tilbury project uh, in Delta that's, that's run on electricity, and the wood fiber project as well, the small scale, smaller scale one in uh, Squamish, which is going to be built with electricity as well. So it is out there and it is uh, in the world globally at this time, but from uh, the size of, of a project, this is this is a game changer for sure. So the fact, you know, what we need to do is work collectively to see how we can help move this project to a final investment decision because, you know, they're not there yet, Shane, and, and there's lots of discussion that we need to have collectively around, you know, what it, would it take to, to make that happen? There is, you know, distribution that needs to ensure that that's reliable pricing when it comes to hydro in the province and and general competitiveness being that this is such a global industry so you know really exciting news from from what is in the realm of the possible you know now it's now it's up to all of us to to ensure that that we can move forward with that and and importantly what it does is position british columbia as that leader in the technology side of things so if we're able to get this right and get this project built along with our other projects you know we have that opportunity to export uh this technological know-how to the rest of the world so you know when you think about our natural resource industries they're really technology industries too so so big important news and i think it's just you know an important step along the path and uh to getting uh to a final investment decision a couple of things there, and you touched on, and I will just try and narrow down on some of them, but uh, uh, one of them is with the electrification. I mean, we have a surplus of hydropower in the province right now, uh, but if this thing goes ahead, we get a good final investment decision, we forge ahead, we get an E-Drive LNG plant in Kitimat. Uh, what does this mean for uh, what we see out there as far as the abundance of hydroelectric energy versus the demand this will create? Is there enough power now to, to satisfy that and all the other things in the province, or are we facing a challenge? there. 
Well, I think that's going to be a really important public policy discussion for sure. Because you think about, you know, you, you include the, the province's commitment around ele- electricity vehicles by 2040. I mean, uh, there's a there's a huge electrification discussion happening out there, and that's really British Columbia's advantage. We have, the, you know, one of the cleanest electricity grids in North America, and it, we really can and should be using that as an advantage. And, and you're seeing that in the proposed uh, Chevron project. But, you know, that's something we've been saying, and I know industry and others have been saying that the, the demand for electricity is there and we're going to need even more of it and it's going to take you know multiple sources so there is you know a lot of room for for solar and wind and and other sources as well as our clean uh, hydroelectricity what we need to do is have that discussion you know with multiple stakeholders uh, over the coming years to ensure that we are able to provide that clean green electricity that we're so well known for any idea in a timeline for an FID for for the Chevron project I mean if they're if they're in the region and they're announcing e-drive and all this exciting news uh the knee-jerk reaction for for people sort of out of the loop would be like oh well why would they announce that unless they're going to forge ahead but what's the timeline on, on a final investment decision yeah, I mean, I can't speak specifically to where, where they're at with their decision. I, what I can say from the industry point of view is what, what we need to work on is ensuring that we have that competitive, um, you know, investment environment here in the province. And, and of course, our, our climate strategy is is one that, that helps uh, meet that as well. So, you know, the recent Bill 10 that was passed in the House uh, just last week, that that's a big, important step to uh, to removing layers uh, of uh, for our competitiveness. You know, there were previously nine layers uh, of taxes in British Columbia prior to the removal of Bill 10 and other jurisdictions, you know, you've got two, two, three, or four. So, so we're well along the path. That's really, really helped out. And I think there's more that can be done, and especially around ensuring that we have a competitive landscape on our climate strategy, which uh, you know we're very engaged with the government on as well. What's the uh, what's the global atmosphere, Brian, around LNG? I know way back when when Premier Christy Clark announced her ambitious LNG plans, uh, those were to some extent derailed when there was suddenly this global glut of LNG and prices uh, really, really plummeted. What's the situation currently, and, and do you see uh, a better or improved situation ahead? Give me a sense what the lay of the land is out there right now. Yeah, I think that that's a really great question, Shane, and I think the opportunity is really there for British Columbia. The world is looking for our clean, responsibly, uh, responsibly produced gas. Uh, the demand for gas is, uh, you know, in the worst-case scenarios, up 40% over the next 40 years. Uh, large portions of the world are electrifying. Large portions of the world are coming up to the same standards of living that uh, that we have here, and they're looking for energy sources. And natural gas is the best energy source that can be provided over the coming time, you know, along with renewables and, and other sources as, as well. So what we're really seeing, and I think what we're seeing with those proposed projects and where Chevron's at, is that the world is really looking for our, for our uh, cleanly uh, produced natural gas and you know we need to look for ways to get it there as quickly as possible because you know uh, while countries have borders emissions do not and we have a real opportunity to uh, displace uh, coal powered plants in uh, in Asia which will reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and really importantly also reduce particulate matter which is what's ca- causing all of that smog and really really low quality air in many parts of the world so from a health point of view we have a real opportunity in BC to do uh, 
um, you know, really powerful and important work in the world. So, uh, so the demand is there, uh, and we're looking to, to ensure that we provide that responsibly and in partnership with our communities, Indigenous peoples, and all British Columbians and Canadians. And speaking of the environment, I know environmentalists and, and people like the Green Party leaders, Andrew Weaver, uh, will be screaming at the radio, but you guys are producing greenhouse gas emissions. It's a monster. It, it totally goes against all of the climate change objectives, etc., etc., etc. What do you say to people on that front when they throw that criticism at the LNG industry? Well, uh, the LNG that we'll be producing in British Columbia, including from the LNG Canada project, will be the lowest emission uh, LNG on the planet Earth will be producing. So by producing it here in British Columbia, rather than another jurisdiction, we're already ahead of the game because we have great regulations here, because we have, we have a great, great techno- technological know-how. So that starting right there is, is a, an excellent story. But the fact that we do have that ability to displace, um, you know, uh, other forms of hydrocarbon, uh, electricity generation in other parts of the world really provides a huge opportunity to do benefit for the world. This is, this is what we're working towards. Uh, I think it's a huge and really exciting opportunity for British Columbia. And like I said, it's the first opportunity that our generation, you know, your listeners and all of us out there right now, have had to build a brand new industry in British Columbia, and we are going to do it the right way. Uh, we have the LNG Canada project, Brian. We have uh, Chevron Woodside Kitimat LNG is approaching an FID. Uh, from your perspective, just so I can understand, uh, how many other projects are sort of sitting on the edge of committing or not committing right now? So we've got wood fiber that's that's quite close, and uh, you know keep an eye on that one over the next while. And then there's sort of another tranche of projects that are that are looking uh, and watching with anticipation as to as to how things progress over the next while. So I think we've got a very exciting uh, future ahead for the LNG industry in this province, um, and it's a it's a homegrown British Columbia story. And I think uh, you know uh, we'll continue to engage with everyone in the province as we continue to build out this opportunity. Brian, thanks for taking a few minutes and uh, walking us through this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Shane. Have a great day. You as well. That's Brian Cox, President and CEO of the BC LNG Alliance, talking about uh, the Kitimat LNG proposal to adopt an e-drive. Exciting stuff, as well as the state of the industry as we speak. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to finish up by reading the tea leaves of this year's wildfire season with the province's chief provincial fire information officer. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. Well, this year's wildfire season, we're not wasting much time, uh, began sort of about mid-last month and had a certain amount of flare-up uh, one weekend in particular with a couple of bigger fires close to Kamloops. Uh, so I thought it was time to bring on this province's chief uh, fire information officer in Kevin Skrepnik to kind of read the tea leaves and what we might be facing for the wildfire season ahead. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, so you're no stranger to this, Kevin, and I know that you've been getting sort of monthly uh, little peaks at, at different data sets to kind of figure out uh, what we may or may not be looking at. Now, nothing is perfect, and uh, we can't uh, we're looking at crystal ball and say what is definitively going to happen. But uh, as you take a look at what's going on out there and some of the some of the things that you're able to access and look at, uh, what's your sort of assessment about how this year is shaping up and what we might see out there? Yeah, certainly, and I mean. As you said, if we had that, if we had that perfect crystal ball, you know, I think uh, I think we'd all rest a little easier in terms of knowing uh, what the summer's going to look like. You know, this far out, there's there's a few things we can look at, and, and we do put an outlook together uh, along with Environment Canada in terms of uh, you know how things are lining up. Um, you know, currently looking at kind of the core 
summer months, uh, you know, June, July, August, um, good chance we're going to probably going to be seeing, you know, higher than normal temperatures. I mean, having said that, though, you know, that's that's realistically been the forecast for just about every summer for the last 10 years, if not longer as well, just given what we're dealing with in terms of the, you know, the shifting climate. Of course, for us, though, from a fire perspective, um, what is so critical is, is the rain that we see. Um, so even if we have a warmer than normal summer, um, you know, if we're getting a decent amount of rain on a fairly regular basis, um, that that can keep things in check. And of course, predicting that rain more than a few days, uh, you know, out can be uh, can be a tricky business. So. Suffice to say, um, you know, I, you know we're going to have fires this summer. Uh, in terms of the severity of the season, uh, you know, it, it's hard to tell. Uh, 2017, 2018, obviously both record-breaking years. At this point, we still kind of have to consider them to be outliers, but uh, at the same time, need to need to be cognizant that things do seem to be shifting. You know, we have to be prepared for you know increasingly more challenging seasons. I note that uh, on Twitter, you you said a couple weeks back, and when someone was responding to one of my tweets, that it, in fact uh, we haven't seen the earliest fires this year that, that historically have happened. Uh, any new wildfires in you know your April March are, are bound to grab people's attention, and there's been a certain amount of reaction out there. Uh, from your perspective, is this more or less fall into I don't want to use the word normal, but uh, does it fall into what we sometimes see at this time of year, or is there some abnormal fire activity going on out there right now? Uh, No, I wouldn't say there's been anything abnormal. Um, We usually kind of almost have a two-phase fire season uh, in the province. Uh, There's kind of what we're in now, this sort of early spring grass fire season typically. The snow is melted, particularly in the valley bottoms. You know, things are are fairly dry out there. Um, You know, all the grass and and fuel on the ground is dead from uh, from the winter. So things can take off quite easily. Uh, The the vast majority of fires, if not all of them at this time of year, are are human-caused just because we don't typically see a lot of lightning. Uh, in the province this early in the year, um, and and you know uh, in terms of the cause of them, you know quite often um, people conducting open burning, you know backyard burning or, or pile burning, and just given that it's early in the spring, sometimes uh, folks aren't as cautious as they should be, and uh, and things can take off on them. So not abnormal to see that kind of activity at this time of year. Um, we've even had seasons where this has been our busiest period. Uh, 2016, um, our our busiest months were April and May in that kind of early spring grass fire season. Uh, then we usually get a bit of a reprieve, usually right around the May long weekend, just as everyone's heading out. That's usually when the rain starts. And then usually the next kind of five to six weeks after, sort of those June rains really dictate how the summer's going to look, um, how much rain we get, where it falls, how long it lingers for into the summer. That kind of uh, that kind of is going to really set the stage for how July and August, which are usually our busiest months, are going to play out. Um, certainly, the look to 2017 is a classic example. We had a fairly rainy spring. Uh, June was unseasonably dry, uh, and then that really kind of set up um, for July in 2017 when things really took off, and we had hundreds of fires start in a matter of uh, matter of days there, and really kind of set the stage for the rest of the summer. Now, uh, of course, uh, we're coming off two record wildfire seasons, 2017 in particular, was it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, we've had the Abbott-Chapman report. We've had a fair amount of political attention, news attention on wildfires. Uh, how much in, in the last two seasons to this one, how much change has there been out there uh, uh, as far as you're concerned, as far as wildfire preparation, fire smarting, uh, adjusting the tactics for how you deal with fires? How much of that has evolved into going into this wildfire season? Yeah, there, there's been a fair bit of, of evolution, and I think that's, you know, if you can take a silver lining out of the last few years, uh, I, I think it's been a, a wake-up call in a lot of ways for uh, 
for folks out there, um, and just in terms of how widespread the effects of the fires were, not just in terms of the fires themselves, but the smoke, the displacement of people, just kind of the general disruption. So, I mean, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of change since then. I think, first and foremost, you look at the kind of base firefighting budget. I mean, obviously, we were going to spend whatever is necessary uh, in terms of, you know, protecting communities, things like that, and we've seen that, you know, more than a billion dollars over the last few years spent, but our base budget had still been fairly static for quite some time, usually a little over $60 million. So that's been nearly doubled to $101 million. So, again, that's not necessarily driving how much it's going to be spent total, but it gives us a larger starting point in terms of staffing, in terms of what we can do ahead of fire season once we're not, you know, before we're in kind of that general response mode. Um, a lot of prevention work in terms of funding. So as you mentioned, fire smart kind of community level initiatives, um, force enhancement society as well, a lot of money being pumped into that. Being what we can do, I mean, certainly when we're seeing lightning, um, you know, there's not much we can do to prevent these fires in some cases, but what we can do is mitigate how intense they're going to be once they do start. So uh, looking at clearing out fuel in some areas, thinning of fuel, fire smarting people's properties. So simple steps folks can take to make that property more defensible if a fire does come through. And then we've also expanded our, our personnel as well. Um, we've uh, brought in more contract firefighters on a longer availability as well. We started that last year. That's been expanded uh, for this year, nearly doubled. Um, so on a lot of factors, bringing in aircraft earlier as well, things like that. So um, definitely we look at it as, as a chance to improve kind of continuously um, and just as we take these seasons one by one, taking the lessons out of them and doing what we can to kind of adapt for what's ahead. And on, the, on that note, uh, you know, we look at uh, our neighbors to the south, uh, some of the horrific wildfires that have happened in California, um, in Europe, in Australia. Uh, we've had some close calls here in BC. 2017, there was a number of them. Uh, last year, we had a couple of close calls here uh, in Kamloops, uh, close to Sun Rivers, above Bachelor. Um, how important is it or how much of an emphasis are you guys putting on, on work, both off-season and on, in protecting communities? Because I think to some degree, we've really dodged a bullet in the wildfire season and not having any lives lost, uh, not to mention not having flames sweep through any kind of a town of any size. No, and I think that is, that's a pretty huge takeaway. I mean, despite the fact we've, you know, as you said, we've had a, a horrific few seasons, uh, particularly 2017 in terms of the effects, the fact that we haven't had a live lost either in terms of the civilians involved, in terms of the responders, when you consider just the sheer scale of what we've dealt with over the last few years, um, I think that's pretty incredible. I think that speaks to the resilience of people out there, and I think that the professionalism of all the, the agencies involved as well. So, I mean, that, uh, you know, as I said, that's, that, that's great that we haven't seen that, but, um, you know, given, as you said, we, in a lot of cases, have dodged some bullets out there, too. Um, when you look at the, the sheer confluence of different factors, kind of the, the perfect storms, if you will, that we've dealt with over the last few years, um, combination of hot, hot summers, unstable white, uh, weather bringing that lightning in, um, you know, the fact that we have uh, not had more fires in some cases has been surprising given just how ripe conditions have been in some instances. So I think that does speak to the fact that people are actually getting the message to a degree in terms of human-caused fires. Um, that number was fairly static from 2017 to 2018. Uh, the X factor has been that lightning, has been those naturally occurring fires. Kevin, always a pleasure, and uh, man, uh, I, I really hope that uh, we can dodge another bullet this wildfire season and all the ones after that, but you just, you just never know what's going to happen, and I'm sure we'll be talking a lot to you over the next few months. 
you and me both, absolutely. All right. That's BC's Chief Provincial Fire Information Officer Kevin Skrepnik uh, doing another tour of duty on the wildfire front. You'll be hearing his voice a lot over the summer months, and we'll have to wait and see what Mother Nature throws at us as far as lightning and or rain. And hopefully we will not, knock on wood, have another record fire season a third year in a row. And that's it for today's Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.